Before we begin today, we are proud to announce that the Crime Story Podcast Night Raid was recently nominated for an Ambie Award for Best Indie Podcast Host. The nomination was received by Molly Miller, who also wrote and produced the podcast. Check out Night Raid wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we continued our look at the testimony of Agent Rachel Wen, a forensic serology expert for the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. In this installment, we conclude our review of Ms. Wen's testimony and begin our look at the testimony of SLED agent Sarah Zapata. That's all coming up right after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It is the morning of February 13th, 2023, day 14 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor Savannah Goud completed her direct examination of the SLED forensic serology expert, Rachel Wen. During that testimony, Agent Wen asserted that she found evidence of the victim's blood on articles of the defendant's clothing and firearms. We begin this installment with defense attorney Philip Barber rising for his cross-examination of Agent Wen. Good morning, Agent Wen. At the outset, you discussed... um Collecting for DNA testing for the blackout cartridges, is that correct? Um, Collecting for the possible presence of touch DNA, yes. Yes. And did you only test two of those cartridges? All seven were processed using the soaking method. Would you have results for DNA from the way that you collected the sample for a specific shell case, or would it be for all seven as a set? Okay. Um, I just want to clarify. I did say there were seven cartridges. There were only six. So although they are being individually soaked, they are being combined within that filtration unit. So the results would be from all of the cartridges together. And um, you did, you had positive presumptive tests for two shotguns, correct? Portions of two shotguns? Agent Wen flips through her forensic serology report until she finds the results in question. Yes, so the swabs from the Benelli shotgun, item 15, was positive for the possible presence of blood However, I believe you mean the um, second set of swabs, item 16, that was negative. And then there was later a item, sled item 22? Oh yes, the two sets of swabs from sled item 22 were both positive for the possible presence of blood. So I guess, what exactly is a presumptive test? So a presumptive test is indicating the possible presence of a body fluid, in this case, blood. It's not confirming the presence, it's just um, an indication so that we can further test that stain. 
and how does it indicate the possible presence of blood? So the phenolphthalein test interacts with the hemoglobin found within blood, um, and that's what it's basically giving a positive result with. Is it fair to say that it changes color? It's like a dye and it changes color? So it's a color change test. Based on the presence of the hemoglobin, a swab that's being tested will turn a bright pink color. And are, is that presumptive test specific to human blood? It is not specifically human blood. It can be human blood or animal blood. Uh, could chemicals other than blood cause a positive test result? So the phenolphthalein test has what we call false, false positives, which can give a positive result, but it is not blood. Um, those include copper salts, nickel salts, nickel salts, rust, as well as some plant and um, peroxidases, which include broccoli, cauliflower, horseradish. It also can give a positive result for pus and sometimes in the presence of bacteria. Okay, so, so there are a number of things that could give a positive result. Is that why you also have a confirmatory test? Um, if we test something for the possible presence of blood, we don't typically do a confirmatory test unless it's requested. We just store that sample for DNA analysis. Uh, who would request a confirmatory test? Um, it, usually an investigator of an agency may request it. Sometimes uh, solicitors or defense attorneys may request an additional test. And the confirmatory test, I think you, you testified, is just basically like a COVID test? It works similar to a COVID test. Two lines means human blood? Um, it'll have a, a line to indicate that the test is working properly, which is a control line. And then if it is positive, it will have an additional second line. If that second line does not show, that means that the test is negative. Is it an accurate test? I would say that it's an accurate test as long as the control line is present. It's more accurate than the pre presumptive test. That's why you use it, correct? So the confirmatory test is saying that, yes, blood is identified on the item that's being tested. Human blood. Um, human blood, as well as higher primate blood and ferret blood. And you did not do any confirmatory tests on the shotguns? I did not do any confirmatory tests on the shotgun swaps. And that was simply because no one asked you to, correct? Um, the, an effort to not consume any of the sample on the swabs, as a swab is a, a small area, um, we just forward it for DNA analysis. But in the, the, uh, the Chevy Suburban, you did perform a hematrace test? Yes, um, because that these swabs for the Chevy Suburban were already previously processed with another presumptive test by the crime scene unit, we could not presumptive test behind because our two tests work in a similar manner. Um, whose decision was it to do the hematrace test on the Chevy Suburban? That is typically how we process items of evidence that we receive from the crime scene unit in the form of swabs based on any of their presumptive testing. But, but like who made the decision to do the hematrace test? on that steering wheel, the name of a person? I perform the hematrace test. On your own initiative? No, that is a common way we do testing on swabs that have already been collected based on a presumptive test. Did someone instruct you to perform a hematrace test on the steering wheel? No, it is part of our general operating procedures. But you did not perform hematrace tests on the weapons? The, the swabs that were collected off of the weapons, no, because they were not presumptively testing prior, so I could use our presumptive test on those items. Did you perform or prepare any samples um, from the victim's clothing or bodies other than the fingernail clippings that you discussed? Um, I do not believe so. Okay, so the, the only thing from the body of, of Maggie uh, Murdoch or Paul Murdoch that you tested were the fingernail clippings from Maggie Murdoch. So I prepared the fingernail clippings for DNA analysis, as well as the buckle swabs from those individuals. Right. But, but nothing else from, 
From their bodies, correct? No, I did not test their, or clothing. their clothing. Or their clothing. Sorry. I did not test their clothing. When looking at the, um, the T-shirt that you just testified about, uh, and those cuttings I think you have in a, opened a bag and the cuttings were there and you prepared them, did you perform any serology tests on those cuttings? No, I just removed those cuttings from the shirt as the result of the crime scene testing. Um, are you aware of any serology uh, tests being performed on those cuttings? Of, of the shirt? Yes, of those big shirt cuttings. I believe there was further analysis performed on those cuttings. Um, did somebody other than you later perform serology tests on those cuttings, to your knowledge? It is my understanding that there was additional testing on those cuttings. Serology testing? Serology testing. Specifically hematrace? I believe there was hematrace uh, performed on the cuttings from the shirt. But that, uh, just to be clear, that wasn't performed by you? I did not perform hematrace on any of the cuttings on the shirt. Did you perform any hematrace tests on the shorts or tennis shoes? I did not perform any hematrace testing on the shorts or the shoes. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Defense attorney Philip Barber continues his cross-examination by asking Agent Wen about the process by which a forensic serology lab handles the testing and analysis of evidence for traces of blood. Just, I guess, maybe a little bit of background to understand maybe who does what. Um, when you're working on this case, um, do you have like a direct supervisor? I do have a direct supervisor. And, and who is that person? Her name is Laura Hash. And, and is she the person who directs your activities as regard to this case? Prosecutor Savannah Goud rises to object on the grounds that the question should be deemed irrelevant. Judge Clifton Newman quickly overrules the objection. Agent Wynn continues. So based on our operating manual, as well as my training experience, based on the requests of certain items that are submitted, I will decide how those are tested. However, if additional processing is requested, those usually are communicated to me through my direct supervisor. And just, just for clarity, we've talked a bit about DNA, but you're just preparing samples and they go to someone else who does the analysis and reports. That's not you, correct? That's correct. I am just preparing the samples for further analysis. Is the only hematrace test that you did for this case, the, the Chevy Suburban, I believe there may have been some negative tests from the Suburban, but were those the only hematrace tests you did for this case? No, I did hematrace the swabs from the Chevy Suburban. I also hematrace tested swabs collected from a Ford F-250. 
And what were the results of, from the uh, Ford F-250? Um, there were four swabs submitted from the Ford F-250, and the results for all four of those sets of swabs were negative for human blood. So the steering wheel was the only positive test that you did for hematrace? Yes, the steering wheel from the Chevy Suburban is the only positive hematrace result I have. Just maybe one final question or a little set of questions. It seems like sometimes the crime scene people uh, or department, I shouldn't just say people, but I guess they're a department, do presumptive blood tests. Uh, is that correct? Yes, it's my understanding that the crime scene unit does perform presumptive blood tests. And I, the words, the initials LCV have been used, I think you might have mentioned. What does that mean? It stands for uh, leucocrystalline violet. And, and can you describe that test? Um, I don't know much about the test. I just know that it is t a test that the crime scene unit uses um, for as their presumptive blood test. Do you know what color it turns when there's a positive result? Um, it'll turn a purple color. Um, so with, I think the, let me ask this. Why, we, we saw a picture of the shirt gridded out. You remember that exhibit? I do. Why was the presumptive test done it was at the slab laboratory, is that the location that was? Are you asking about the LCV process? Yes, where was that test conducted? That was done at the slab laboratory. Why was that done by the, the crime scene unit and not the serology unit? We do not use LCV testing, and I am unsure as to why that particular test was chosen to be used by the crime scene unit. Because in the earlier, you did tests on the hem, right? The, the pheno tests on the front and back hem of the shirt, is that correct? I did. But then the crime scene unit later came back and in the lab did a different kind of test. That is correct. And you don't know why? I was not part of that decision. I was just notified that they would be performing that test while I was retrieving the additional stain that I had tested earlier. And finally, it seems like if something is tested presumptive in the field and comes to you, you do a confirmatory test? Is that what happened with the Chevy Suburban? Yes, that's correct. But if something comes to you and there's not been a presumptive test, like with the shotguns, then you don't perform a confirmatory test? No, I do the presumptive test. Um, do you know why that's the policy? It's an effort to not consume as much sample on a swab. A swab is a very, it's like a, a sterile Q-tip, so essentially the surface area is very small. So in efforts to not consume the sample and to give more for DNA analysis, that's what's done. If something goes to DNA analysis and, and there's some result, does it ever come back for a blood test to see if the source of the DNA was blood? Um, to be fiend tested? No, for hematrace test. Um, as I mentioned, hematrace testing can be requested on the back end as any of our um, car tests can be. In your experience, I think we had some testimony about your experience. If DNA is found on something, is there ever then a, a time that you go back and say, hey, was the source of this DNA blood and do a hematrace test? Um, hematrace specifically, to my knowledge, no. But in my experience, there have been times that solicitors or defense attorneys will request a car test be done on a sample after the DNA analysis has been performed. With that, defense attorney Philip Barber concludes his cross-examination of Agent Wen, and Judge Newman excuses the witness. After a 10-minute recess, the state calls sled agent Sarah Zapata to the stand. Ms. Zapata appears to be in her 30s. She wears her long dark hair pulled back and parted on her left, and wears a dark blue blazer over a blue and white patterned blouse. Prosecutor Savannah Goud again handles the questioning for the state. 
She begins by noting that Agent Zapata has brought a container of notebooks that include her case file and other relevant documents. Goud asks the witness where she works. Agent Zapata responds that she has worked for SLED for around seven and a half years as a forensic scientist in the DNA casework department. Prosecutor Goud then asks Agent Zapata about her duties and qualifications, and the witness outlines the various duties involved in forensic DNA analysis, specifically that the analysis process consists of isolating and approximating DNA. Agents then interpret the profile, calculate statistics, and prepare a report. Agent Zapata further testifies that she holds a Bachelor of Science in Forensic Science from Pennsylvania State University. Her training includes observation and testing for competency, written and oral exams, mock cases, and court simulations. She has testified in 19 criminal trials. After Judge Clifton Newman qualifies Agent Zapata as an expert witness, Savannah Goud continues her direct examination by asking her to give the jury a primer on her area of expertise. All right, um, you had mentioned in some of the duties of your job, kind of what you do. I guess if we could kind of scale it back a little bit more basic, but briefly, <laughs> um, just what is DNA? DNA is a chemical that is found throughout your body with the exception of red blood cells. Um, you get half of your DNA from your mom and half from your dad, and it's unique to individuals with the exception of identical twins. And so if we have a case where there are family members involved, um, what does that mean as far as DNA analysis? Based upon the evidence DNA profile, um, sometimes it might not be possible to make comparisons to some family members because there may not be enough DNA present there to distinguish between the family members. Um, because the family members will share DNA, that will affect what the DNA profile looks like. Can you tell us about some different sources of DNA from a person's body? Um, some sources from your body would be your hair, blood, um, semen, saliva, bones, um, as well as DNA from your skin cells, which is what we call touch DNA. And what are some variables that can affect touch DNA? So some people just naturally shed more skin cells throughout the day than other people, and so you would expect to recover more DNA from an object that a person who sheds a lot of DNA has handled than a person who sheds less. There are also factors such as the surface that is being touched. If the surface is rough, then you would leave more skin cells behind. If you are holding the item for a longer period of time or with a lot of pressure, then you would expect to leave more skin cells behind. Um, environmental factors such as rain, moisture, UV, light, that can all um, lessen the amount of DNA that is recovered. Um, and also personal hygiene habits can affect how much DNA you leave behind. So if you've just washed your hands, there may not be as much skin cells left behind. So do you leave touch DNA behind, kind of like you would leave a fingerprint behind? Is that fair comparison? Kind of. If you touch it, you touch an object, you may leave some behind. All right. Now you mentioned um, different sources, such as body fluids. Are you able to confirm like 100% which body fluid a DNA profile comes from? So the test that we perform to try to identify a body fluid is different from the DNA testing that is being performed, especially in cases where the evidence profile is a mixture. There's no way for us to tell 
did all of this DNA come from blood? Did it come from saliva and blood mixed together? There's no way for us to identify 100% um, the source of the DNA profile. We can indicate that a body fluid may be present, but we cannot say the blood on this item is from this individual. So if I had a drop of blood on my shirt up here, could you ever say this was my blood? I could test it um, for the, in the indication of a body fluid. I could see if your DNA profile um, is recovered from that stain, if the evidentiary DNA profile, um, if you are included as a contributor to that profile, but I can never 100% say that is your blood. So you could say my DNA is here, but not my blood. I could say that you're included as a contributor to the <laughs> DNA profile. Okay. All right, and I think you kind of already explained your process of um, DNA analysis when you explained um, your duties. Can you tell us about some of the, you know, standard lab procedures and protocol? How specifically do you mean? I mean, I guess just basically how you analyze a DNA sample. So I will take the DNA sample if it has been previously cut by a serologist or an evidence processor. I will add the reagents to the tube um, and proceed with my analysis that way. If it has not previously been cut, then I can prepare the sample for DNA and then take it through those steps that I explained earlier. So extraction, quantitation, amplification, and separation into a profile and then I will interpret the DNA profile that was developed. So I will determine um, if there is enough DNA present there for the profile to be used for comparison. Um, I will determine the number of contributors to that profile. So profile can be single source, which is DNA from just one individual, or a mixture, DNA from multiple individuals are present in the profile. I'll determine um, if it's a mixture, how many, people are in that mixture or how many I'm interpreting that mixture as. And then um, I can calculate statistics to compare. So first, first of all, let me stop you for a minute. Sorry. But these determinations, how are you making the determinations? So I'm looking at the DNA profile and using our protocol, our procedures, my training and experience as a DNA analyst to determine the number of contributors to the profile. And are you, how are you looking at it? Are, are you visually looking at it or is a computer program looking at it or what's going on there? So I visually examine the profile myself as the analyst. I determine the number of contributors to the profile and then we also use a software program called StarMix to help in our interpretation. And what StarMix does is look at the evidence profile and attempt to break it down into the potential contributors to that profile. So if you think about the evidence profile as like grandma's chocolate chip cookies, you know exactly what that cookie is supposed to taste like. You know what the final product is supposed to be and you're trying to recreate that recipe and get it as close to grandma's cookie as what you know it's supposed to be. So you're testing different ingredients at different proportions to see what can make up that cookie. And that is kind of what StarMix does when it's looking at the profile. And then um, I will evaluate the StarMix output, make sure that what StarMix is telling me makes sense based upon what the profile looks like. And then if everything worked properly, I can use StarMix also to calculate our statistics. Okay, and, and how do you calculate that statistic? So the statistic that StarMix calculates is called a likelihood ratio. It's a comparison of 
two possible scenarios to see which is a better explanation of the DNA profile that was developed. It works kind of like a seesaw. So if you have one scenario on one side and another scenario on the other side, and StarMix is going to put more weight on the scenario that is a better explanation of the DNA profile. You do these kinds of comparisons subconsciously in your mind all day long. If um, the DNA profile, for example, is the fact that someone ran a marathon, that's your result. The two scenarios that could explain that result are, one, the person trained every day for months leading up to the marathon. They ran many, many miles. The second scenario is that they sat on the couch and watched TV and never ran at all. Um, which one is a more likely explanation of the fact that they finished the marathon? It would be the first one, that they trained really hard. And so that is the kind of comparison that StarMix is making. And, and where do these scenarios come from, I guess? So based upon what the DNA profile looks like, we will set up um, the two opposing scenarios to make the comparison. And the first scenario is always going to include the person whose standard is being compared to that profile, so the person whose statistic you are calculating. And the second scenario is always going to include an unidentified, unrelated individual because you need something that opposes that comparison. So for a single source profile, your two scenarios will be the person being compared is contributing to the mixture versus an unidentified, unrelated individual is contributing to the profile for a single source. If it is a mixture, then you need to account for the other potential individuals present in that profile. So for a two-person mixture, for example, the first scenario will be the person being compared and an unidentified, unrelated individual contributed to the mixture versus two unidentified, unrelated individuals contributed to the mixture. And so we'll make that same comparison for each person based upon what the DNA profile looks like. And so this unidentified, unrelated individual, where does that really come from? That's just the way that the statistic is calculated. It's not saying that it's not possible for related individuals to be in the mixture, but because we are focusing only on the comparison to that one person, we need something to contrast that to, and we account for that by using that unidentified, unrelated individual wording. So is that just kind of built into this formula in the StarMix program? <clears throat> Correct. With that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the testimony of SLED Forensic DNA Specialist, Agent Sarah Zapata. Also, check out the Ambie-nominated crime story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And, if you'd like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.